This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in episode three of Radar by Nextworks, our monthly podcast in which we want to share all the innovative news that excites us and that has an impact on every company out there. Again, I'm here with a team of Nextworks colleagues. I have Julie, our CEO is here. I have Joren, our senior program lead. I have Pascal Koppens, our China expert. And I have Peter Hinzen, our innovation and strategy expert. Unfortunately, Laurence is not here this time. She went through some dental surgery today and we did a quick test and we thought it would be very difficult for a sound-only production to involve Laurence. So she's going to pass this time and she will be back next month. Before we dive into the different topics that we selected for you, I just want to start with the most impressive topic within our company, within our group here, and that is the YouTube channel of Pascal. It was amazing to see what happened this month. I still remember, Pascal, I think it was three weeks ago that on LinkedIn and Facebook, you shared a post in which you said, I've been on YouTube now for 16 months and I finally achieved my goal. I have 1,000 subscribers and everyone was cheering and saying, thanks, Pascal, that's great. And then everyone thought, okay, it's going to take another 16 months and then he's going to be back saying, I have 2,000 subscribers. But then, Pascal, the crazy thing happened. Tell us what you went through on your YouTube channel. Yeah, and uh, Stephen, just after uh, I posted that on LinkedIn, indeed, um, I was so happy that I was above 1,000. And then suddenly, after I think it was 12 hours, I had like 500 more. And I was like, okay, what's happening here? And then suddenly they started growing. And I even chatted with you saying like, what's happening? Did I do something special or whatever? And then it just kept going. And so right now I am at 10,500 uh, yeah. in three weeks time. And more than 100,000 views on your videos. On, on one video, yeah, 100,000. And most of them is now more than 40, 50,000 views each. And there's one video with 2,000 comments, which unfortunately I spent the, the whole week responding to all these comments. So <laughs> it's changed my agenda a little bit, but it's really exciting. To it's exciting. And I've read this multiple times that once you reach 1,000 subscribers on YouTube, that then the algorithm of YouTube is starting to take your content into account. And apparently your content is very unique, high quality, high engaging. And I think because of that, the algorithm is pushing you higher and higher. Now, I mean, when you look at the engagement on your videos, you get likes like crazy. You have all these comments. People just love it. They go really wild. You have groupies now from all over the world. And it just shows the quality of your work. So I would recommend everyone that is listening to subscribe to Pascal's channel. And then you could say, oh, I was within the first 20,000s of his hundred thousands of followers that he will achieve in the next couple of months. So I'm going to keep track of that, Pascal, every single day because I'm very excited to see what's going on. Yeah, thanks, Steve, and I will do the same. <laughs> Pascal, just promises one thing. When you do reach the 100,000 and you get asked to go to Jimmy Fallon, please don't forget about us and please keep <laughs> supporting us and keep coming back to the podcast. Don't let it grow over your head. No, no, I, I definitely won't. I mean, don't worry about that. 
but uh, for me, I think now my, my job is to create content. I think that's the most important and uh, I love doing that. Oh, so, and Pascal, yeah. maybe in the next video, in your introduction, you could mention this podcast. Who knows? We'll get thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners if they know that you're also in this format. Yeah, but now I need to charge for advertisement. <laughs> uh, I understand. You're already a professional YouTuber, so that's cool. Let's go to the first topic of this month. Last week, I saw something very crazy, something very strange by Amazon. I don't know if all of you have seen it, but Amazon decided to open up a hair salon in London. And um, when I saw that headline, I was like, what are they going to do now? Is this a new vertical that they're going to attack or what's the game here? And apparently what they're going to do is they're going to use this hair salon to experiment with augmented reality. And they're going to show people what happens if you buy a certain product, if you want to dye your hair orange, you can now use the augmented reality in the store to check out what you will look like with orange hair, and then you can buy it online or in the store. It's an experiment with augmented reality. I think that it's one of the first online players that starts trying out augmented reality in store. So that's an interesting one. The only question I have is why do they start with a hair salon and why not do something in their Whole Foods stores or in their Amazon Go stores? And why do they start a hair salon? I have no clue, but it's an interesting experiment. So let's see what the next phase in this plan will be. And any one of you who has an idea why they picked a hair salon? I have no idea. Maybe it's the pent-up demand that we all have after lockdown to spend more time with the hairdressers. But yeah, you know, it just, just seems like a crazy thing for them to do. They have huge recruitment numbers. So maybe if they are thinking if we can just recruit people to the hair salon because everybody needs to be there someday, <laughs> you know, maybe they're just, I mean, increasing reach there. I don't know. Or maybe it's a practical joke from the new CEO to the old CEO saying, I have hair, (laughs) something like that. And now we're going to go into the haircutting business. I don't know. Maybe that's a practical joke and we don't get it yet. So that's... uh... Maybe in the evolution. I mean, which one of you would actually suppose... I mean, it's not there yet. I mean, this is just VR, you know, smoke and mirrors. But which one of you would actually say, I would like to get my hair cut by a robot? And any one of you who would be willing to do that? If it's a good robot, yeah. Yeah. Wow, of course yeah. it's a good robot. I mean, but, I'm I mean, not sure about that. <laughs> and they will give you specific or particular ear protective gear probably to, you know, if the, if the robot just doesn't pay attention that well, you could be in safety. I'm sure Pascal's going to tell us that they already have robots in China that cut your <laughs> well, hair. No, I was going to tell you a different story. In China, during the pandemic or just after, they had to keep their distance. And so a lot of hairdressers, they cut hair from a distance of 1.5 meters. And that is like as crazy as a robot. But there's a lot of videos about that, that people actually cut on a distance and it does work. So um, maybe it's something to think about. When it comes to this whole story about hairdressers and uh, London, I think in China, you've seen it a lot with cosmetics, not so much with hairdressers, but most of the big cosmetic brands actually were already using AR anywhere in most stores to show how you would look after using certain cosmetics. So I think maybe that's just something new. But uh, I've seen this in China, but uh, then it was the L'Oreal's of this world. All right. I absolutely do think it makes sense, eh, guys. You know it, you have these books where you can choose your cuts and you pick one of the guys that looks good. And when you walk out, you think, oh my God, I don't know what happened, but this is not what I envisioned. So I do believe that augmented reality can be in real added value at the hairdressers. 
But then augmented reality will just be a better way to show what you didn't get. I mean, that's just my conclusion. I exactly. Mean, instead of a book, you're now going to see yeah, that you really don't look like what you look like in AR. But a much better digital version of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny, although, right, we have three balding guys here talking about hairdressers in London. So I think mission accomplished there for Amazon. It definitely yes. works out for them. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's go to the next topic and let's talk about their competitor for a second. Let's talk about... Walmart. Last month, we talked about Disney and how Disney became a phoenix and how they transformed themselves and reinvent themselves over and over again. And then we said, well, let's do something about a phoenix every month. And this month, Peter, we're going to talk about Walmart, one of your favorite companies to work with and to talk about. And last week, they announced that they will invest in Cruise, an all-electric self-driving company. Why is Walmart investing in Cruise? So first of all, Walmart is a big phoenix out there. It's been the inspiration for my book, The Phoenix and Unicorn. What I find interesting about Walmart, it's the biggest company in the world. It's 2.5 million employees. It's the biggest traditional retailer on the planet. And I think if a company like that can reinvent itself, I think there's hope for basically everyone out there. So Walmart has been on an innovation journey over the last five years, going all in. And what they really want to do is really take a really wide angle in terms of how they want to innovate. From the in-store experience to the online environment to acquisitions in e-commerce to using robots. And this is something you have to see in how to really take the autonomous world into the world of retail. They have two big angles there. One is they want to fully automate the operations of the company itself. So they have you know, a lot of robots in their warehouses and robots you know, in the supermarkets themselves. But they also really want to figure out how to automate the delivery towards the end consumers. And this is something where they have been experimenting quite significantly over the last couple of years to do that. One of the experiments that they had is with Neuro. I don't know if you've seen the Neuro little carts but they're like little mini buses that are stacked with groceries or things that have to be delivered. And Neuro was one of those companies that Walmart partnered with. They also partnered with Waymo, which is you know, the self-driving car division of Google. But now they decided to actually go a little deeper and invest themselves in a self-driving company. And in this case, they decided to actually go for Cruise. Now, Cruise is one of those startups. We had a chance to see them in San Francisco quite a lot. You would see the Chevy Bolts actually just turning corners, and there were always still humans in there. But Cruise was one of those self-driving companies that was a pretty successful startup in the Bay Area. Cruise itself was a company that was acquired by General Motors mm -hmm. back in 2016. So in 2016, General Motors paid $1 billion for Cruise. And since then, they have added more and more partners to actually deal with that. So they had a big round of investments about a year ago in January of last year, where Microsoft was one of the big investors in Cruise Technologies. So if you look at Cruise, this is still owned by General Motors, but Microsoft is in the capital. Honda is in the capital, SoftBank is a big uh, investor, and now Walmart has said, you know, we're going to take this very, very seriously, and they invested in this company as well. They had been working with Cruise for the last couple of months in Arizona. For some reason, 
all the self-driving projects are actually in Arizona because that state has legislation that allows self-driving companies to actually experiment. And in uh, Scottsdale, they had Walmart and Cruz already working together to actually deliver groceries completely autonomously to customers in that part of Arizona. And apparently Walmart liked it so much that they said, you know what, we'll invest in the company. We want to be one of the shareholders. I wonder, Peter, do you think that the choice for Cruise would have anything to do with the fact that Cruise is, I mean, we've seen them a lot in San Francisco as well. Like, isn't this a way to get more footprint into the city centers as well for Walmart? Because they're usually pretty rural. So partnering up with that particular company might be a way for them to get closer to that direct-to-consumer delivery, no? Oh, absolutely. I think that's a really good observation. I mean, you're absolutely right. Walmart is typically not in the city centers. I mean, in the city centers, you would have a Whole Foods, for example, but not a Walmart. Walmart is really in the outskirts, the suburbs, and in the rural areas. And I think their idea of delivery and using autonomous delivery is a really good way to do something in the city centers. I think it also helps the fact that Microsoft is now one of the big partners in Cruise. And well, you take a look at Microsoft and Amazon are not particularly buddies. And Walmart and Amazon are direct competitors. So that probably helped as well a little bit. But you're absolutely right. They really want to get into you know, cornering the city centers in the US and then potentially abroad. Yeah, and is the goal really to take the last mile delivery and to you know, have the end-to-end customer experience for all their orders? Is that what they want to achieve? I mean, a big part of what they want to do is really make the convenience sky high, I mean, absolutely seamless and flawless. The biggest problem, of course, is that we've been talking about autonomous cars for a long time, and it is incredibly difficult to actually make it work. I mean, there are all sorts of technical hurdles. I got a cramp a couple of weeks ago because... I think it was the CEO of Waymo who um, signed off. I mean, he wanted to do something else. And um, in the final press conference, when he was asked by a bunch of tech reporters, you know, when are we going to see full autonomous cars on the road? He said, not in my lifetime. And I thought, shit, this guy is probably younger than me. So it's not going to be in my lifetime either. So that was one of the most depressing things I've heard in the press recently. But I keep hoping that there's going to be some sort of a breakthrough. But so far, the results have been incredibly poor. There's always still a human involved in training. And honestly, if you see how much money has been poured into autonomous and how little has come out, I really hope we're going to see some progress because I can't wait a lifetime. Yeah, and remember the days, Peter, that we said in our presentations, our children will never have a driver's license anymore. That's absolutely true, but that was a really bad prediction. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Peter, um, the corporate notion of GM and Microsoft and Walmart all working together in this total problem. Pascal, maybe interesting to hear your thoughts on that as well, because What we've seen in China as well is that you have those huge ecosystems of companies investing in other companies. And is this something similar we're seeing in the West, like more collaboration on this scale? How are you looking at that? Yeah, specifically in the automotive industry, you see a lot of collaboration because the car manufacturers usually have the factories, but it's not them pushing the new car of tomorrow. And so it's either the Baidu's, which is like the search engine of China, or it's a cell phone manufacturer, there's someone else who thinks he can connect or he can make it autonomous. And so 
they will all work together. Even Didi, the mobility company, they're all working together. And they're competing in one area, and then they're working together in another area. So it's, it's quite natural because you can't do it alone anymore in this uh, fast-paced society. And we've been talking a lot about autonomous driving now, but I mean, an, an evolution that is going on at high pace is the move towards electrical vehicles. And there it seems like China is really going to take over the planet. Pascal, if you see at the speed of change and the investments and the results that they're having now, it seems like if the Western car manufacturers will not speed up their game, my assumption would be that they're going to lose massive market share to Chinese companies. Do you see the same thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, specifically because the market itself, China is the biggest market in the world when it comes to EVs today. But if you look at last quarter, it's been a boom crazy again. I mean, 2020 was not so big in China because of the pandemic, but now it really started booming again. And 10% of all the cars that were sold last quarter in China were EVs. So that's a huge amount already. And, and so this is going to go to 20 or above 20% in the next four or five years. So this is really starting to take over. The interesting thing about China here is that 50% of the market of the last three months was actually just two companies. And those two companies is one you can guess, it's Tesla, which is one third of the market of China is almost done by Tesla. Wow. And 37% of every Tesla that is sold now is sold in China. Wow. So that's almost one out of two cars is, is sold in China or in Asia. So that's, that's a huge market for Tesla. But the other car that is within that 50% is one that you probably haven't heard about. It's called Hongguang Mini EV. No. I don't know if you've no. never heard about Hongguang. Oh, no, no, <laughs> they no. sold hundreds of thousands of them. <laughs> no, this is a, a mini EV. And the interesting thing is that it costs only 4,500 US dollars. It's less than 3,000 pounds or wow. a little bit above 3,000 pounds. And it's a real uh, car. It's not it's like a real it's, not, car. it's with four it, wheels. It's not like it's, with three wheels. and No, <laughs> it has everything that you would dream of. Okay. It's just a little bit smaller, uh, but it's, it's called a mini EV. And the reason that it was just such a hit was actually because license plates in China are quite expensive. In most cities, you pay up to $10,000 to get a license plate in wow. Shanghai, for example just because they can't have more cars. Uh, but if you buy an electrical car, the city will give it for free. So if you buy two of these mini EVs, you get two license plates. So with the price of one license plate, you can get two EVs. So uh, people are just buying these EVs to get the license plates, but actually it creates a mindset change. And I think that's what's most important. Uh, people Pascal, are starting Pascal to use just, it. just out of curiosity, then do they then dump those mini EVs <laughs> and get another no, car? Or do they actually, actually use it? No, my guess is they're giving it to their parents yeah. or something like that, or friends in the rural areas. But uh, the real thing is that it's 50% of the market is, is like the high-end Teslas and the low-end mini EVs. That's most of the market. And then the other 50%, and that will surprise you as well, is shared by 500 registered manufacturers in China. 500? 500, 500, brands of EVs in China. And we know the most uh, famous ones. I mean, NIO is the top one. There's BYD, of course, in Shenzhen. Mm -hmm. uh, company like uh, WM Motors or Xpeng, AIways, which we also visited with Nextworks. I mean, there's all these brands that we don't know about much, but which are doing really well in China. The story I wanted to tell here is the story of Tesla, because I think it's an interesting one. Just last week, something happened with Tesla in China. Remember, they have 37% of the market there. 
And to do that, they had actually gotten the red carpet in China. They got a gigafactory there, much more effective, this factory, or they're producing almost half a million cars every year now in that factory. And they got the red carpet, got loans from the government. But just last week, the government, the Chinese government said that Tesla has a problem. And the problem is that they're actually spying with their sensors and their video on people, on Chinese in the streets. So Tesla is using the data to spy on what they see there. And so there's this the reverse Huawei situation from the US that is now put on Tesla. And so the Chinese government is asking Tesla to share that data and not give it back to the US, to the headquarters, because it can, has to stay in China. So a huge debate now. But it's interesting. It's like this TikTok story that was in the US that's now completely coming back to China and Tesla. And so the question is, what will Elon Musk do? Will he actually accept that? Or he first said, I'm not going to accept that. This is data from customers and or consumers. But if he's not going to accept that, then probably it's going to happen. What happened to Google is he will have to leave China and leave 37% of his markets behind. So that's going to be a very interesting uh, evolution. It's like ripping the red carpet right from under his <laughs> right feet. Right from <laughs> under his feet, yes. And that's, uh, my guess is he's going to have to accept it. But what's interesting, Peter, is that Neo is coming up with a bright idea to lower the price of cars. And so what they're doing, and it's already effective in Beijing, is they're doing swappable batteries. Mm -hmm. And so the biggest cost of an EV is the battery. And the battery can last for 10 years or longer and can still have its value afterwards. And so you can go and buy a NEO, and in Beijing, in three minutes, they swap your battery. And so there's a whole new industry of battery as a service coming up in China. And so you need an infrastructure, but NEO is building that infrastructure in China. And I'm sure that will be their master plan for Europe as well. I don't know, but it, it looks like a bright idea. It definitely does. And I thought about it. I mean, imagine going inside a garage, swapping out your battery and then driving on. It would be fabulous if it works. But the thing is, of course, that they have the same problem like Tesla used to have. Eh? It's the chicken and the egg. So either they create and the cars and the battery swapping network or either they won't succeed because they will need both to be successful. So they will need loads, they, yeah, loads of cash to make this happen in uh, in Europe. But cash is not the problem, and when it's about China, so so I think. And plenty of chickens are a really big market chickens. as well. <laughs> it's the country with the most chickens. That's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to our next topic. Something totally different. As you know, Julie is really working on the future of work, and. Um, the challenge that we see for many organizations is to make sure that they have enough diversity in their organization and not just in their entire organization, but also in their boardroom. And now we want to talk about an interesting evolution that we've seen at a Belgian telco, Proximus. They added a new member to their board to increase diversity. Um, Julie, what, what happened there? Absolutely. Excellent moment in this podcast as well in terms of diversity. I kind of felt like in an old boys club talking about cars and EVs. And so I'm, I think I'm going to have the rights for a veto or something to talk about cars in the and next one. balding men in yeah, hairdressers. I, mean, I, I really need Laurence back in here. But it's true. I mean, um, diversity uh, in general, I think, is an important topic or should be an important topic in every boardroom or in every company these days. And what we've seen happening in Belgium at Proximus this week was that they uh, actually asked Ibrahim Ouassari, who's actually the founder of Molengeek, into their board, which is super exciting. 
not only because Molen Geek is super exciting, that's a project that's been around for years by now, and actually Molen Geek and Proximus were already partnering as well, but now seeing them take the next step and actually asking Ibrahim as well to join their board is an interesting move. And then the first thing that everybody thinks is like, yeah, this is just to put a check on the box, like, okay, we have a diversity policy and we invite somebody in. But I think if you just look at the diversity in terms of a cognitive way as well, I mean, the guy knows so much about digital, so much about technology, has a network like crazy in there as well. You could see some opinions on the internet as well, like... At least it's somebody who really knows his talk. And it's not only because of his diverse background that he's invited into that board, but also just because of his knowledge. And I think that's interesting to see that it's not just a lipstick test. You know, it's not a check the box. It's it's really how are you taking the series and moving it forward is interesting to observe. And you see tons of initiatives, I think. Our office is in front of the building of the Vouretz. They just started an initiative to have a young board. Uh, so for people from a younger age, just still studying, to also advise them. You could also see Yusef Kobo from a seat at a table at the end festival. Also, yeah, just advocating like you really need the systems changed in those companies because many people just can't just start a job because there's a check the box on the application. Do you have a degree? And as long as the box is there, they can't formally onboard these people. So all of these initiatives, I think, are interesting to observe, like how are companies adapting to this new reality, to diversity inclusion, but also really in the broadest sense of the word. And I think that's the most important thing to see, that it's beyond words, but that it's actually into their systems that it's changing. Yeah, and uh, I think the reactions to it are very positive. If you look to what people are saying, people are excited about it, and you see that more and more when let's say traditional boards are becoming more diverse, more younger, more female, you get positive reactions. Like Chili, we should maybe mention here our favorite soccer team, Club Bruges. They recently changed their board by adding three young international women to the board, which is like unseen in a typically male world of soccer. But I, I think all good, but a board then also has to change its ways. I mean, I'm very interested what's going to happen to Proximus now, because, of course, Proximus is half owned by the Belgian government. So they have a pretty big say in how that company is being run. But I think if you put your money where your mouth is and you change the composition of the board, you also have to take it to the next step. You have to change the way a board works. And I think that idea of rethinking a board, not just in people, but also in governance, in how they think about strategic horizons, how they think about the future, how they think about risk. I mean, I have been on so many boards where the number one talk is numbers. It's all about finance. It's all about traditional risk and control mechanisms that are dealing with balance sheets. But if you're going to bring in that amount of completely diverse talent, I think you also have to change the governance of a board. And that's, for me, the true test, not just the people that are on the board. Do you see companies already applying new ways of doing that? Slowly. I mean, honestly, I see some of the other ways, Julie, is that they bring on one or two people with a completely diverse background who actually are then bored out of their skull because most of the discussions is about the numbers or get frustrated by the fact that you know they can bring so much to the value discussion in that company and they're not really taken seriously. So honestly, I think there's still a big, big way to go there. It's not just about 
putting a couple of people on the board. It's fundamentally rethinking how they do that. And I think we're going to see a couple of companies that do that differently, that have different ways of looking at a North Star and your sense of why and purpose and figuring out a different type of dynamic in terms of governance. But so far, I haven't seen that much really pan out. Yeah, in uh, China, you also don't see that at all. eh? And uh, it's only companies like Huawei that are willing to have some diversity. But it's amazing that they all want to go and take over the world and take over Europe, but they don't have any Westerner in their board. Of course, language is a big issue for them because traditionally in the board, only Chinese is spoken. And so for them uh, to switch to English, I mean, that will be possible with the newer generation, the younger generation. But if you're uh, Ren Zunfei, the founder of Huawei, to speak English, it takes some effort and uh, and you're not used to it. So I think that will take time. But I think the other direction is also a problem. I mean, if 20 to 25 percent of your market comes from China, why don't you have a Chinese on your board? And I haven't seen many companies worldwide with the Chinese in their board. So yeah. it goes both ways. And I still feel that we both believe we know better how to do it when it comes to the world outside of our home market. And so maybe that should change in itself. Does Tesla have a Chinese in the board? Not that I know of. Probably the answer is no. Eh? Probably they're all investors from Silicon Valley. They're probably not even spread out through the U.S. It's probably all from within uh, the range of a Tesla battery that they live from the headquarters. That's probably how they organized it. But it is amazing that you would have a company worth so much and that so much comes from China and you don't have a Chinese that actually is on the table. So I don't really understand why, but I think this is going to be something that companies will have to look at. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just a natural evolution. I mean, it's boundary spanners. We work a lot with Greg Sattel as well on network effects. And if you look at groups, it's also creating that common language. As you mentioned, language as such is already a problem. So I think seeing those diversity seats in a board is just a first way of making the distance a little bit smaller. But I completely agree with Peter. That doesn't change the game, of course. And it will create multiple effects like that to actually change the system overnight, I think. But at least coming closer to each other and be open and curious will likely get them there. I think Tesla will be likely earlier in considering something like that than another company that has nothing to do in China. Mm-hmm. There is no Chinese on Tesla's board, but uh, Hiro Mizuno is on the board, and he was the chief investment officer of the Japanese governance pension fund. Well, no, it's not Chinese. <laughs> no, that's no, no. close enough. Fund. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's go from governance to governant. Last week, the European Union announced that they would come up with a regulation for AI. They became world famous with their GDPR. We've talked a lot about that. Companies are finally figuring out how it works. And now the European Union is saying we want to do the same thing for artificial intelligence. And I read most of it last week. And, you know, there were some good things, but I was also surprised by some of the elements that I saw. They were talking about high-risk applications, that they need to monitor high-risk applications. And there were a number of things that make sense. But like, for instance, driverless cars were also in it. And I was like, okay, so they think that a machine that drives a car is more dangerous than a human drives a car. Whereas on average, we have like 1 million people a year that die in a car accident. So it is proven over and over again that humans cannot drive cars in a safe way. And the more automation we have in a car, the less accidents a car has. So they see that as dangerous. And when I saw that, I was thinking, hey, 
I'm really wondering to see the details of all the other decisions that they would like to make. And I'm sure, Peter, that you dove into that document as well and that you have an opinion on that as well. I certainly have an opinion on it, but you're going to have to wait a while because it's going to take at least two years for that regulation to appear. So what they basically did is they announced that they were going to build regulation. And it was just, I think, a positioning statement, probably more than anything else. The official title is a proposal for a regulation on a European approach for artificial intelligence. So a couple of things there. First of all, it's just an indication they're going to think about it. I mean, that's basically it. It's going to take at least two years for something to materialize. They want to regulate AI, and especially in the high-risk environments. But the interesting thing is it's going to be a European approach. So what they want to do is they want to regulate artificial intelligence based on European values, whatever that means. I mean, we're Europeans. I'm quite sure that, I don't know, a Polish and a Portuguese are probably as far apart as somebody from Greece and and Denmark. I mean, my God, what are European values? And what they want to do is take that commodity of European values and then say, if we apply that to that wonderful domain of artificial intelligence, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. I am incredibly skeptic about this, but I think they wanted to position themselves. I don't know if you saw the press conference, Stephen, but it was the two people that are always talking when it comes to these topics. It's Margrethe Vestager and Thierry Breton. Margrethe Vestager we know because she's the iron lady of digital Europe. She used to be the ones that was fighting Google and Amazon because companies like Apple are evil. She's the one who has been giving fines. And then in the latest reshuffle of the European cabinet, she was given the digital agenda as well. So she was not just a lady who gives out fines. She also had to fix Europe's digital problem. And then she got a big, big help with Thierry Breton. He's he's about as French as you can get. But Thierry Breton, he's like Mr. Technology in France. He was the CEO of Bull Computers. He was the head of Atos which is a big consulting firm, and um, he was the CEO of France Telecom. And those two teamed up and they said, we're going to fix digital. Now, as you know, I was not a big fan of GDPR. I think it's one of the worst pieces of legislation that ever came out because honestly, I mean, companies spend a shitload of money implementing GDPR. And do you get less spam, Stephen, than you did two years ago? All we have to do is click on I accept all the time. 300 times a day. No idea what we're actually, and and nobody still has any idea what they do with our data. So I think GDPR was a big, big fluke. I mean, that's my personal opinion. But now Europe says, we're going to do it again. And now we're going to do it in artificial intelligence. And as you said, they said, these are dangerous applications or high-risk applications. And one of them is, for example, facial recognition. I mean, they said, oh, facial recognition, really, really scary. And there is some scary shit out there. I mean, one of my favorites is actually HireVue. And if you've seen that, but HireVue is an AI application. Now these days, you can't interview applicants because you cannot be in the same room because of COVID. So you hire them over Teams or Skype or Zoom. And HireVue is an AI that while you're interviewing the applicant, it's going to tell you whether that person is trustworthy or not, whether that person is going to, you know, really be a big factor in helping you in your company or is somebody that might rip you off and run away with the money. I mean, 
Honestly, if I'm the CEO of a company, I would like to have an application like HireVue, but the European Commission says, no, you can't do that. You cannot use these dangerous high-risk applications. At the same time that they introduced that proposal for legislation, they also said, oh, and by the way, we want to be a world champion in artificial intelligence. And of course, the reaction, I haven't seen the reaction from China, but the reaction from the US was, what a dumb idea. I mean, a lot of the lobby groups that work for the Amazons and the Googles and the Microsofts says, well, this is a, a blow to innovation in mm -hmm. Europe, because how can you be a startup in AI in Europe if there's sort of Damocles with legislation hanging over your head in the next two years. So I think it's a very interesting thing that Europeans have done. I think it's a really bad thing to do, honestly. And I'm not sure if this is going to come out as a positive thing for Europe. Mm -hmm. I think it's very, very difficult to combine innovation and regulation and legislation in, in one sentence. You know, so I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm not pro. And I think some people may argue with you about face recognition and the possibilities about that. But it's almost, if you look at what they suggest, it's basically everything that you can automate is seen as dangerous, eh? whether it's uh, automated uh, exams that are being corrected at the university or a hiring process, as you mentioned, driverless cars, home security, everything that can be automated is seen as high risk. So basically, when I saw the list, there's nothing left that they don't see as dangerous. Now, the only thing that we can hope for, Peter, is that they continue in what they're really good at, and that is being extremely slow in implementing things. <laughs> and if we're lucky, it will not take two years, but it might take 10 years, or how long did GDPR take? I think it was more than 10 years. So let's hope that they are very consistent in that behavior. Let's hope it's not in my lifetime. Yeah. That's the only <laughs> conclusion I have. Huh? Guys, seriously, let's face it. This legislation is not going to be beautiful. Eh? It's going to be crafted by lobbyists and by people who don't know anything about AI. But at the same time, we have to give them some credit, right? I mean, Peter, you're right when you're saying that regulation almost always stifles innovation. But at the same time, I mean, we cannot say that there are no risks at AI. Eh? So I, I do think it's a valid discussion. It's a valid discussion. I mean, 100% agree, Joran, and I think it's going to hopefully stimulate some good debate. But I mean, you've probably seen the European Parliament in action, right? You see a room full of people that are so completely diverse that the only thing they come up with is mediocre drab. And then you're going to have to take, you know, the middle ground of those European values and translate that into legislation into a field that is moving at a light speed. I think, honestly, it's an almost impossible task. I definitely believe that China is going to look at that. They're going to say, now's our time, <laughs> because ultimately, I mean... Look at the hiring. If that's the case, then, well, China can hire all the talent from Europe and it will be easy. They can use their AI system. They can drive with their self-driving cars and face recognition. I mean, let's face it. I mean, most of it is used in China or a lot of it for, for very convenient practices. Mm -hmm. And I know China's always looked at that as a bad guy, but face payment is now the new normal in China and everybody's paying with their face. So is that not allowed anymore because it's real time and it's dangerous? Uh, I don't know. I think it's going to be very funny to see all that happening. But uh, I hope it's going to get delayed in Europe because otherwise I think it's not going to make our competitiveness very well. I talked about this in my weekly video as well at Pascal on YouTube and I saw your reaction saying that, you know, it's always with, with Europeans, they always refer to the social project, the social scoring project in China yes. 
and say, we need to stop AI because we don't want to have the social scoring project in Europe. So we need to act now so that we don't become like China. But the truth is, Pascal, there is no social scoring project yet in China, right? No, it's only in test projects. It's a myth so far that it's all over the place. So far it's a myth, but uh, people don't believe that because it's been said and repeated so often that we should be scared. I mean, we shouldn't generally be scared of China. But what people do forget is that China is regulating as well. And they're also looking at AI and they're also looking at privacy and they're also looking at a lot of things, which in my view, they're doing it together with the industry. I mean, if you look at many of these things that are happening and financial, for example, is working with the banks right now to figure out how to make the finance work. And and, and so everybody's working with the industry to figure it out. And I think... It's just like Peter said, here it's it's more the European Parliament and, and people that maybe have not been so close to the business that are making these laws. And mm-hmm. they might listen to them, but it's still different than making them together. Yeah, I'm wondering whether it would not be a good idea to talk about regulating the use of data rather than the use of AI. I mean, in the end, what AI is going to do is gather a lot of data and then do something with it. So it might be a better idea to say, like, you can use data, you can't. And go from there, but it's hard. I think it's a very hard problem to solve, but still worth debating about, absolutely. Data ownership would be really nice, eh? that that the power goes back to the consumer at a certain point where you can choose, okay, I want to share this data with this company in a very user-friendly kind of way. At the end of the day, I think that's the only solution. And then as an organization, you need to prove your value to a consumer or they will cut you off of their data and you're not capable of you know, communicating with them anymore as you want, or you cannot automate with them anymore. So I think my preferred outcome is that the consumer can decide individually and that it's not the same for all of us because, you know, my preferences are different than yours. Uh, and and you see, it's a, it's a whole debate, uh, Jürgen, um, when, you know, one of the consequences of GDPR and the fact that there is so much legislation is that companies like Google and Facebook, especially Google, is trying to come up with new solutions, new ways of tracking. And they got a lot of criticism for the way that they were tracking us around the internet. And now they came up with this new philosophy called Flock. And I know you're an expert on that, but if I have it right, I'm not sure if I understand it right. In the past, all our data was gathered by Google and it was centralized and they could share that to sell their advertisement. Right now, what they want to suggest as an alternative is that when you go to a specific site, that your behavior on that site is tracked and that data is given back to that site so that they can hyper-personalize your advertisement on that site based on the data that was collected on that specific site. Is that how it works? More or less, yes, indeed. Because in the past, it's like you said, eh? uh, they were using something called third-party cookies eh, to track your behavior along the internet and that allowed them, for example, I I don't know, Stephen, uh, you might be very interested in corkscrews, for example, and you collect, you're crazy about them. I'm a corkscrew fan, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And by visiting Corkscrew websites, they could basically target you with ads on Facebook for Corkscrews because they knew you were interested in it. And that was because of third-party cookies that were placed on your computer. So it worked pretty well. But what we are seeing today is that a lot of browsers are natively blocking these third-party cookies 
which is making it harder for advertising companies to track your behavior and target you. So in a way, what Google is doing here is reacting to what is happening in the world already. People are blocking third-party cookies. So Google is saying like, hey, guys, you know what? We have the solution. So we are going to let your browser track your behavior instead of using third-party cookies to do so. And your browser is going to build a profile about you. And whenever you visit a website, we're going to share your profile with the website you're visiting. So instead of everybody is going to collect data and store it, it's the browser that is going to collect data and store it and share it with people. Of course, and, and that's the reason why, why Google is so happy about it. They have one of the most used browsers in the world. And de facto, they are again going to be in the middle of whatever advertising model they are going to set up. Because let's face it, online advertising without Google right now is rather hard. Mm -hmm. So we're going to need them. And, and what we're seeing right now is exactly what you're saying. Eh? A lot of browser makers are saying, no way, we're not going to do this. We don't want this uh, flock, which is, uh, by the way, um, for the people who are interested, hold my beer. It stands for Federated Learning of Cohorts. And it says it all. Eh? It makes groups of people that you can target all over the internet. And the technology as such is not bad. The fact is that Google is again going to build a monopoly around it when other browsers is implemented. So there are a lot of questions about Flock, of course. Well, I think one of the interesting things, of course, is that the market share of Chrome is probably playing a very interesting role in that as well. I used to track you know, the browser wars quite intensely, but the Chrome market share at this moment is around 70%. So 70% of all browser activity you know, basically is Google already. So I think they have a pretty dominant platform out there. Yeah, and then the question is for the user, what will change eh, at the end of the day? So this is a very technical discussion, but for me as someone using the internet, I don't think anything will change. No, absolutely not. It's more for the advertisers. Eh? Everything yeah. is going to change again for them, but not really for the end user. For advertising, it's also the dominant model right now. Like uh, Peter and I are doing some uh, work, and, and you're in, you as well, actually, on uh, what's the future of finance in general. And there's a lot of things happening in the micropayments uh, or microfinance space as well, where they're working on systems like how the longer you are on a page, that you actually get paid as a creator of that website for the time that people are on your website. So then the, there becomes a whole economy just on a page as well, beyond the advertising and the data. So might be interesting to see what Google is planning on that era as well. And maybe they want to introduce something alike as well. My personal little anecdote, Joren, but that's a very nerdy, geeky thing to add on to the flock discussion is that over the last couple of years, they have been working on all sorts of mini projects with advertisers, which always had bird names. I mean, sparrow, swan, pigeon, pelican, parrot. And they said, we'll put it all together and we'll call it a flock. That, that, I just love that. I thought that was really, really fun. Talking about shared values. <laughs> well, Steve and I have become a big, big fan of the algorithm of Google since three weeks. So yeah. I think they really figured it out. <laughs> I'm just being curious now because who here is not using Google Chrome? 
I'm not, and I'm also not using Google, but I'm probably I'm the nuts. Well, I love Google Chrome. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I don't use Chrome unless uh, software is forcing me to do so. That's because I'm lazy and I don't care. So I just use Safari because that was pre-installed on my computers <laughs> and my phone. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's really lazy. <laughs> I don't care. Are you the same guy who, when you buy a picture frame in a shop, you just keep the picture that was in it? Because you know, why would you change the picture? You know? <laughs> no, I'm always no, wondering no, who no. those people are. No, no. In fact, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, frames and my, my parents were photographers so I, I grew up in the middle of frames and pictures so that's that, there I'm not lazy at all talking about the lazy part of our brain and connectivity of our brains I want to go back to Julie and we're going to talk about something totally different in our next item Microsoft one of the market leaders in virtual meetings right now and hybrid work and remote work they actually measure the level of engagement of their employees every single day they do service all around the world every single day. And now they release the results of that. And what they've seen is that in the last couple of months, slowly but steadily, the level of engagement of people is declining because of the fact that there's so much remote work and they want to work on that and they want to change that. Julie, what is the plan? What is the situation here? Well, I think... Uh as always, I'd like to enlarge the situation. I think it's just a signal of how urgent it is to really bring people back to an office. Because, I mean, the whole working from home revolution, I would say, I think we can all acknowledge that it happened and that it's here to stay. And now there's a new revolution in place, like which rules are we going to install about working from home as soon as this is over? So all companies are like coming up with, yes, you can come back to the office. Uh, Facebook, Uber, Google, Microsoft, they're all advocating and, and asking people to come back. But then there's a but uh, sentence at the end. Uh, but you can only come back if you ask approval, for example, and then you are, for example, at Google, they are saying that you are, will be allowed to have 14 days working from home if you have approval from your manager. So in terms of laziness, I wouldn't choose for that option. Microsoft, they're a little bit more progressive, I would say, like 50% of the time you can work from home, totally okay. And even at Goldrat, for the ones who know the retailer in Belgium, I don't know whether you've read that, but since years, it's been a company that really, really measures, like you come an hour to work and you work seven to eight hours a day and that's it. And all the rest you can get in holiday. They are canceling that system. I mean, it's a revolution in the company because tons of people, of course, have like 50 days of holidays uh, a year because of that system. Now they're just really going to cancel it. And what you see, of course, is that those people ask for more flexibility. Of course, uh, that's the true working from home revolution that we're seeing right here. That's the true thing. Like, make sure that people come back to the office and that they have a reason to be there, that it's also relevant to be there and that they can choose for themselves. Like, is this a day or a time that I need my space alone to work here or do I need that connectedness at the office? So I think the results from Microsoft... I mean, that's just for me a signal of what already everybody knows, like we're too much in the black of the black and white working from home, uh, working at an office. And I think you really need both. What we really don't need is that every company in the world is trying to make rules about this. What they should have is more flexibility and a good framework for people to feel at home, at work, or just to feel comfortable with making the choice. So I think that that whole Making rules about it is it's a stupid discussion. Seeing that it's necessary to bring people back, I think that's more than urgent. Some people want full flexibility. I have a friend 
that used to live in New York for his work. Now he's back in Belgium. And now it, uh, he doesn't have any children. And with the pandemic, he decided to sell his house and go live somewhere else every three months. So he's going to move in June. He's going to go to Norway. And then when it gets colder, he's going to go to Greece and to Spain. And he's going to live in every European country three months and then move to another one. And he says, I just have to be within a one hour's drive of an airport if I have a client meeting that I can go. But I want to live everywhere and nowhere right now. So you have... Yeah, people who see the opportunity and, and want to grab that and they, they want to have an employer that gives them that flexibility. I wonder also what the impact is going to be on uh, real estate, because honestly, I think uh, we saw the move, as, as Joran said, people moving out of Silicon Valley. But I think it's also on how we're going to design houses, you know, with a lot of that hybrid work. What, what's that going to mean in terms of how we think about architecture and design? And, and I think that rethinking is, is something that is maybe a little bit more longer term because that doesn't happen overnight. But I think it's, it's part of that bigger question. Yeah, there was a study that came out uh, yesterday, I think, among youngsters, how they want to live, what their dream living situation is. And it changed completely. Now they want to live not in a city, they want to live in a quiet place with a garden so that they can work outside in their own garden. That's a problem because our entire system is built on new ways of living, co-housing, smaller venues in cities. And now because of the pandemic, they want to move to a quieter place where they can work and have the comfort of their own home and have a garden and have some time outside there. So the behavior and the needs changed overnight, basically. Yeah, and it all screams variety and flexibility, as you mentioned, Stephen. I think uh, the example of your friend, there was also an article just stating that if people would have been denied by their employer to work from home again, they would just quit. <laughs> so indeed, yeah. the increased flexibility is huge as well. Uh, but how to cope as an employer or just as a system, as a city, as I mean, any system with this new balance is, is going to be interesting to observe, I think, yeah, in the absolutely. following years. Because you have all kind of extremes. Huh? You have my friend that wants to travel around the continent, but you have people that just want to go back full time to the office as well. It's not that everyone wants to stay home. So you have all kind of extremes and then every possibility in the middle. So personalization of what people want is going to be more crucial than ever. And organizing yourself for that flexibility and that personalization is going to be crucial, I think. Let's move to our next topic, money. We didn't talk about money yet. And we're going to talk about Chinese money. And um, Pascal, we need to learn here from you. Uh, what we see is that China is digitizing their Huang. And as a consequence, if they succeed in that, they believe that they could challenge the U.S. dollar as the world's most common currency. What is going on there? And how serious should we take that? We should take it very serious. I believe that uh, China could challenge the U.S. dollar. I'm not sure, sir. China believes that, uh, and they definitely don't want the U.S. to know that if they believe that. Uh, but what's happening is that um, China is the first large economy uh, that is going to launch a central bank digital currency. And uh, every country in the world is looking into it, and also the European Union is looking into it. But this will really change, in my view, the whole world of finance and will impact the US dollar over time. In China, it's called DCEP, uh, nothing to do with deception. It's a digital currency, electronic payment. And this is a, a payment which is kind of similar to the UN, that is the currency in China. And it's convertible one-on-one. -on -one. one digital yuan is one money yuan, I mean, in paper money. And so you can just convert it. And there's a few other countries in the world, like the Bahamas and Cambodia, that already have launched it, but no large economy yet. 
And the reason that China is really pushing forward is because they have had like seven years of work onto launching this. And they have had the experience from Alipay and WeChat Pay, Alibaba and or Ant Financial and, and Tencent, where they really saw the whole economy transform. And so they believe very strong in the fact that if everybody would pay, be digital and do digital payment every single day, it could really help society. And specifically when it comes to inclusion, a lot of people were taken out of poverty because the digital money was available. So people could start earning money in more ways than before. Your money doesn't have to sit with a bank and you don't have to wait for the transfer. So it's cheaper, it's faster. But it can also help against criminality or to do monetary policies and all these things that normally it's quite difficult to change society or the economy. And so the People's Bank of China is now launching this central bank digital currency called DCEP. Likely it's going to be launched at the Winter Olympics next year in February. So they've been working for seven years nonstop since Ethereum was available on can we do this? And so this is very, very much perfected right now. What's interesting to see is that their top priority, and that's not something you would expect from China, is actually privacy. They really want people to be able to exchange money and companies exchange money between themselves without the government knowing, which kind of like is weird. <laughs> but the reality is they don't want a lot of the small transactions that happen to be known to the central banks or even the central governments because they want to make sure that the money is actually flowing. Consumption is very important in China. It's not aimed at Alipay or, or WeChat Pay. So this is really about internally improving the transactions that happen in the country. But why do I believe that it's a threat to the US dollar? It's because one of the big challenges that China has, and there's a few other countries in the world like that, is uh, economic sanctions. And think about Iran or North Korea. These are the most obvious ones, uh, but also Cuba, Venezuela. And so the US dollar, because the U all the trade in the world happens with the US dollar, is actually a very powerful weapon to block any trade that is happening in certain countries. And China, of course, has seen what has happened with Huawei and others in the last years, that they really worried that if there's no alternative, that actually the US dollar could actually block any technology or anything they want into the country. So this is one of the reasons I think this is going to happen fast. It's going to go international and primarily because of trade. Because if you look at trade, there's 140 countries in the Belt and Road Initiative. And so that's a lot of countries trading daily with huge amount of money with China, and they don't need the US dollar. Why are they using the US dollar? 95% of all the trade in the world happens with US dollars. And the only reason is because they want to put some money somewhere in the bank to make sure that they actually get paid in the right time and everybody get paid and there's an insurance against currency fluctuations and so on. And so this is all just insurance for that trade. And that is not needed once you have an alternative. But with only 2% of the reserve of all the money in the world being the US dollar, it's not so easy to change that. But I believe that the 16 trillion US dollars that we talk about that is sitting as a reserve in US dollar could actually melt away over time if there's an alternative with the CBDC or DCEP, as they call it. So I think this is going to be a game changer. Once this comes out, I predict that many, many traders in the world will start trading directly in Chinese currency through the CBDC because they have no value in using the US dollar. And the interesting thing is that the Federal Reserve in America is actually not too worried. They're not in a hurry to create their own central bank digital currency. And so it looks like this is an open goal for China. 
Well, if I can add to something, I fully agree with the fact that I, I think CBDC is going to be one of the big things in the next decade. But I think the China example is going to be probably one of the first at scale. But this is going to be something where almost every central bank in the world is going to be implementing something like this. We recently saw in the UK, for example, that the UK is now accelerating its move towards its own central bank. So the Bank of England is going to issue its own digital currency. And of course, what they want to do, again, is prove to the fact that it was a really good idea to get away from Europe because they want to do it faster than the Europeans can. But as Pascal said, Europe is doing that as well. But the most fundamental thing about this is that it's going to change the role of the central banks. I don't know if you know what a central bank really does, but a central bank for many people is just, it's that weird stuff that prints our money. I mean, that's basically what a central bank does. But they do bank oversight. So they actually provide the legislation, so the regulation for banks. But one of the most important things is that the central bank is actually the hub that operates the commercial banks. So the real-time gross settlement, so if you're with bank A and you want to transfer to bank B, that settlement of money is actually done by the central bank. That is the most important thing. But fundamentally, you don't have an account with a central bank unless you are a bank. But with digital currencies, that completely changes because that would mean that you as an individual would actually hold an account with a central bank. And this is now driving the commercial banks crazy because this is, for the first in hundreds of years, going to completely change the role of what a central bank can actually do. And I find it fascinating because this is something which is a little bit detached from the cryptocurrency hype of the moment, but it would allow transactions to happen 10 times faster than today and 10 times cheaper than today. Now, that really would help in the inclusion part because that would make banking a lot more affordable to many more people out there. But fundamentally, it's not just a way to cleverly think about the role of a government. It's also about changing the role of the commercial banks at the same time. And I think that tension between the central banks and the commercial banks is going to be one of the most interesting things to observe. Hey, Peter, but help me understand why would I, as a customer today, go directly to central bank Security and safety, because they would allow you to make sure that this is going to be probably one of the most reliable ways to actually make sure you don't lose your money. Now, we don't think about this in the Western world. I mean, if you go to a traditional bank, you trust that bank. Mm -hmm. But in an emerging country where you have no idea whether the bank you're going to go to is still going to you know, flourish, uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in actually trusting your hard-earned money with a commercial party that has to figure out what to do. But a central bank you know, is backed by the government, and that's going to provide you with a lot, a lot more security if you think about it. Now, this is not the only one. We're not just going to have the central banks issuing digital currencies. We're going to have companies issuing digital currencies, stable coins, which are you know, linked mm -hmm. to a value. And of course, the biggest one we've seen in the last couple of years was Facebook Libra, Libra, Libra which yeah. exploded in their face. And many people thought, well, that was it. Facebook tried it and it just blew up. Forget it. This project is more alive than ever before. It's not called DM. And Facebook is really, really building up to that. So honestly, I think what we're going to have in the next couple of years is central banks you know, playing the role of digital currency provider 
and the likes of Facebook providing digital currencies. And the commercial banks, the traditional old banks, are stuck in the middle, and they are suddenly going to be faced with two completely sides of adversaries that want to eat a piece of their cake. What I'm really curious about, because we're, we have been talking about the CBDC right now, right? But have they thought about like actually changing the value of the currency? Because that's what central banks do right now, eh? because they can bring extra money into the system to devaluate the currency and they can take out money out of the system. Yeah, but monetary policy is still going to remain you know, the, the discretion of the central bank. So the central bank is going to define how much currency is out there. So the monetary policy, that's their say. But in most of these digital currencies, the digital currency is linked to the value of the normal currency, the fiat currency. And that's probably going to be the same in China. I mean, it's going to be the same value, whether it's a digital yeah, it's, one it's or... It's the same um, value. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing is when it's digital, you can actually do with that money what you want, uh, even remotely. And with paper money, it's very hard to say to someone, uh, you can't spend it. Uh, but with digital, you can actually put a limitation date on it, which is quite an interesting concept that you get money that has a limitation date. You have to spend it before a certain amount of time. But in China, actually, the central bank and the commercial banks is two tiers as well. So it's the exact same system as it is here. And so maybe that could be a blueprint for the rest of the world, because if that works, the commercial banks will remain as powerful almost as before, except that people won't need to go to the bank because it's not linked to an account per se. Once you withdraw, it's, it's, it's your money, you do whatever you want. With WeChat and Alipay, that's different. It's always an account you have, and it's actually balanced on the account. It's not balanced on your phone. Now the money is sitting on your phone. And so wherever you use it, that's up to you to decide. So it, it, it is a big change happening. It is. And just to add on to what Pascal said, I mean, if you have $100,000 in your bank account and you want to withdraw it you know, because you don't trust that bank anymore, the bank says, no, you can't do that. You can only withdraw $2,500 a day or you know, 1000 from an ATM every single day. But in a digital currency, if you have 100000 in your digital currency, you can move it immediately all at once. So this is going to be extremely interesting also what happens into that type of you know, flow of money. Yeah. What I think is most interesting is that not many people are watching it. And it's going to really change. I mean, you see a lot about, like you say, cryptocurrency, but outside of the financial world, you don't see a lot of people talking about this uh, central bank digital currency. And for me, it might be uh, one of the biggest things that is happening this year and next year. So definitely worth watching. Absolutely. And one final thing on this, it's not necessarily based on blockchain. So uh, one of the interesting things about uh, cryptocurrency is that it's based on a decentralized system because it's based on a system of blockchain, which is decentralized ledgers. But a central bank doesn't actually need to do that. A central bank can use a much simpler system and therefore doesn't consume all that amount of energy that is always associated with the cryptocurrencies. Well, it also has 100,000 times more transactions per second than, uh, than the cryptocurrency. So oh, yeah, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Yes, correct. Thank you. And we're going to go to our last item. I have no idea what we're going to talk about for our last <laughs> item, but uh, I'm going to give the word to Jürgen because he told me I have something strange and I want to add it. There's a new startup backed by Peter Thiel, and I definitely want to share it in the podcast. So, Jorun, enlighten us. Yes, thank you, Stephen. It's about money, too. If you want to make a lot of money or lose a lot of money, I'm not sure about it yet. Uh, you have to invest in the new um, 
Peter Thiel-backed startup. It's called uh, Atai Life Sciences. Um, they are from Berlin. Uh, they are going to IPO later this month. So um, let me tell you a little bit about this startup because honestly, there's a whole world opened up for me when I was researching this company. But uh, Jorn, is that the one owned by the Belgian guy? I saw a company that was backed by Peter Thiel this week with a Belgian guy who was involved. It might be, but it's definitely interesting to look in it because they call themselves a healthcare company, right? But they are basically investing in alternative treatments and psychedelics. So this is really interesting. So that's where I lost it because I couldn't go on. But uh, apparently they are looking into MDMA, Ibogaine, DMT, products you normally get from the strange looking guy next to the bathroom stall in a club, right? And they are looking into these products to sell them for medical purposes. It's really interesting what they are doing because Atai Life Sciences has nothing less than 12 companies under its umbrella, all working on the same thing. And it's an interesting world to look at because, I don't know, have you ever heard about a company called Psychable? No. This is where the real fun starts. Eh? So basically, what it is, is it's a search engine to find psychedelic practitioners in the US, Canada, or in other parts of the world. So if you are in need of MDMA, for example, to fix your headache, you just go to Psychable, you well, it's like Google, you find your practitioner and they are going to help you to get better. In a way, I'm laughing with it right now, but it's big business. They are doing a lot of drug testing as we speak. So it's still not approved, but a lot of people are already working with it, um, if you can call it like that. But it's amazing to see. I mean, we're talking about ketamine, everything, everything. Just to illustrate, there's another company going to IPO um, actually tomorrow. So for our listeners, that's April the 27th. And it's called MindMet. They started off at about $2. They are already at 4 right now and they haven't even IPO'd yet. So if you want to make money or lose money, I definitely um, recommend looking into this. Psychedelic drugs might be the biggest hit or miss for the next 10 years. Okay, and then I'm not talking about digital currencies, but this might also skyrocket. I fully believe that because I met a doctor a while ago that was doing research on arachnophobia, so, you know, insane fear of spiders. And they use MDMA to treat people to actually get rid of their arachnophobia. So I truly believe that this is something which originated in the 1960s and 70s and quickly went into LSD and then, you know, that whole trippy environment there. But I think revisiting that to see what the positive consequences could be, could be big business. This is the part in the podcast where they're saying, like, this is not formal investment advice. Please do not take our <laughs> advice. <laughs> but he always said you can win or you could lose. Huh? So yeah, I, he mentioned both sides of the scale. No, but I think scale. It's, a, yeah. it's interesting to see. I mean, um, it's a specific part of the healthcare industry, I think, that is moving into multiple directions. We know a great guy in Silicon Valley. He's called uh, Adam Ghazali. And uh, he actually got a video game approved by the FDA for um, people who have HDHD. So it's cool to see that, I mean, alternative treatments and alternative healthcare practices are being embraced by the broader system. I think there's tons of lobbying going on uh, as well. But you can also see the big corporates moving into that direction. J&J like &J, um, invested in it uh, a lot of universities like Yale and John Hopkins actually have a whole institution just on psychedelics. So this is more than just, I think, the little boardroom hippie uh, having a new idea. I think this is uh, something to watch. 
No, it's absolutely it's serious business. Uh, there's a lot of money going on there. Um, they want to raise $100 million. And so far, they have already raised uh, $360 million from private investors. So it's barely something you can call a startup. Uh, of course, it's Silicon Valley. We're used to big numbers, but in healthcare, it's always a, a tad bigger. Eh? Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Jorun. I'm glad that we had that as a final item in our show. We just had to, Stephen, admit it. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. I admit it. I admit it. I'm very excited about it. And um, yeah, that brings us to the end of episode three of Radar by Nextworks. I want to thank everyone who participated and I want to thank everyone who listened to us. If you want to do us a favor and you like the podcast, please tell one of your friends or colleagues about us and tell them that this could be interesting for them to listen to. That would help us to increase our reach and that's what we want to do, inspire as many people as possible about the day after tomorrow. I hope you enjoyed the episode and we're going to be back next month for a new episode of Radar. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.